I'm sure this sounds very like boring to some people, but surely there's someone out there that that also finds like talking about how canning is done in a like in a fictional setting as exciting as I do. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Kareen from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning. This podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Welcome back to Keep It Fictional, a podcast from the Port Moody Public Library. Dear listener, I hate to inform you if you have not yet heard the news, but the world is ending. Liz is leaving the ultimate apocalypse scenario. While she goes on maternity leave, we will be forced to traverse the barren wastelands of Keep It Fictional and the rigors of librarianship without her calming ASMR to keep us sane. Next time you see us, we may be changed people. And that's also what we decided to base this episode around, not necessarily with the thought that this would be Liz's last episode, Unrelated, although equally apocalyptic scenarios in my mind. So tales of the apocalypse, they can take many forms. Many stories focused on a society destroyed, wiped out by aliens or natural disasters or world wars or plagues. Others present a dystopian view of life in a society that may be mutated after a collapse. Post-apocalyptic stories can focus on different aspects of life. They can incorporate different genre. Uh, Some are fast-paced adventures. Some are maybe speculative or philosophical works. Some might be political thrillers. Some might be about finding love or family in a world where you have to fight to survive. It's a very human genre, in my opinion, which likes to ruminate on sort of like the sins and virtues of the world, uh, sometimes focusing maybe more on one than the other. But At heart, they are reflections of the anxieties that we feel about the future, and in part how we respond to these anxieties as a people. You can generally look at trends in post-apocalyptic, dystopian, or horror narratives to get a sense of what scared people at a time. For instance, I've seen papers discussing the connection between the, not books, movies, but Saw franchise and suffering in post-9-11, in the post-9-11 world, or many alien invasion stories like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I'm trying to think of some of the books that would have gone along with it, can be linked to fears about Cold War spies infiltrating America. So post-apocalyptic fiction is a responsive genre, both to the things that we're scared about in the world, the things that we're scared about in ourselves, and how we want to tackle them. It's a genre that you can feel a lot of different emotions connected to. There might be hope, there might be despair, there might be almost anything you can imagine. I'm sure there is a post-apocalyptic story that can bring that out. And I'm going to pass it over to Liz, who's going to hopefully have sort of an interesting an interesting take on that one. Well, thanks, Gabriel, first off, for that unexpectedly dramatic goodbye <laughs> to me um, and a wonderful introduction to our episode. You can tell that Gabriel is passionate about um, our particular theme today, Um, and I I think I am too. So today I wanted to share with everybody a book that I have been plugging ever since I read it. It was first published in 2018. It was one of my staff picks here at the library. And if you'll think back to 2018, which seems so, 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 so long ago, who would have thought that picking up a book about a plague and finding it enjoyable would have been a thing. So this week's topic might not be for everybody. However, I do encourage all of you, you know, maybe keep all of our titles in your back pocket for that one day, one day when we come out on the other side and go, you know what? I think I'm ready for this. Anyways, the book that I have for you today is called Severance and it's by Ling Ma. And it was uh, their debut novel. It made a lot of best of lists of the year, again, 2018. And also, let's see, it was a notable book for the New York Times Book Review. um, And it also won the Kirkus Prize for that year. Yes, that notorious cutthroat Kirkus. I have a feeling that I have such strong feelings 
strong good feelings about this book because it was one of the works of fiction that kind of got me back into popular reading, recreational reading. It's just something that was kind of darker, different, and made me go, oh yeah, I, I, do, I do really, I do really like this kind of book. So that's, and that's where we kind of spiraled to where we are today. Anyhow, our book opens with us meeting Candace Chen. She is a 20-something working in Manhattan for a publishing company, specifically dealing with Bibles. It doesn't matter to her what the content of what she's publishing is. It's a job to her. And if there's any fault that she has, it is that she is a workaholic. She loves routine to the point where not even a plague can break her of that routine, at least not at first. So Shen fever has spread across the world and brings life as they know it to a halt. Apparently there is no cure for this. And there are some people who are immune to it, although most people are not. What causes Shen fever, that's uncertain, but what it causes to happen is that the infected repeat actions ad nauseum. Basically, they will do certain things repetitively in an endless loop until they expire, until they die. So for example, uh, you might have a homemaker who enjoys vacuuming and they will vacuum and vacuum and vacuum and it doesn't matter if the power's gone out or the vacuum's falling apart, they will just keep pushing that thing around until they literally collapse and die. So yeah, not a great way to see your last days, I would think. Anyhow, throughout this all, Candace somehow remains healthy and she keeps working and working and working and working. So even as people around her are doing strange repetitive motions out on the streets of New York, that's okay. She just walks around them. Even when the subway stops running, that's okay. She'll find a cabbie who's not infected. Even when the elevator in the high-rise office building that she works at is no longer serviceable or can't be serviced because there's nobody to call for service anymore, she will trudge up those stairs and make the most of her day at the office. What really helps is that she has been offered a hefty financial contract to indeed keep working because it looks good to the customer. It looks good if there's actually a human person somewhere to take the publishing house's calls and queries. But as you guessed, pretty soon she's the only one left, not just in the office, but it seems in the company in general. She starts to realize that, oh, you know, management is not getting back to me about any emails. I can't seem to reach anybody by phone. Yeah, I guess I'm the only immune person left in the entire company. Anyways, by this point, her entire routine is thrown because what she's gonna, what is she gonna do, right? Nobody to work for and nobody to work with. So she decides to leave Manhattan and eventually connects with another group of survivors. Now, this ragtag bunch is headed to what they call the facility. And along the way, they scavenge for supplies from the homes of infected people. Uh, and when they do encounter infected people in their repetitive loop, sometimes things don't go particularly well. Now, this group of survivors is led by a character named Bob. He's rather domineering. He's asserting his knowledgeability, I suppose. At least that's what he wants them to think. And he is the one who has proclaimed that the facility is the place where they will find their new home. That's where they'll establish their new survivor camp. And it'll be somewhat of a utopia for them. Shades of cult, maybe, maybe not. Corian, this might be up your alley. Anyhow, the survivors get to the facility and lo and behold, it's an abandoned shopping mall. Oh, not quite the utopia that they thought it would be. However, it is a secure place for them to stay. Just when we think things might be, you know, on the upswing, relatively speaking, because remember, we're in the middle of a plague uh, for Candace, she's got a secret. Now, we know what that secret is as the reader, but this secret is 
has been up until now undisclosed to the group. And when Bob finds out about this, he declares that they need to monitor Candace and can't let her out of their sight. So things have gone from bad to, I don't know, worse, relatively speaking, and, and you know, in the midst of a plague. I mean, yeah, when your personal freedoms are taken away, that is pretty bad. So anyhow, a very interesting take by Ling Ma on, uh, and a satirical take about our worker society, about, you know, what the expectations are personally and as a group as a whole, when the entire world literally health-wise is crashing down around you, financial systems are going down, social systems are have collapsed. A really interesting take on how different people will find different ways to adapt, find different ways to cope, maybe not in ways that we would agree with or that we would do, but interesting nonetheless. So I'll leave you there with that. If you want to find out what happens to Candace, what happens with the plague? I really do recommend this wonderful piece of writing called Severance, when you're ready, post-pandemic, post-plague. Again, Severance by Ling Ma. Awesome. Thank you so much, Liz. That actually sounds really cool. And I might, I might check it out later because I do love a, I do love a cutting satire on, on the world. Um, I think we're going to go from someone who maybe had uh, a more traditional post-apocalyptic story to someone who maybe had a little bit less of a traditional apocalyptic story. Uh, Kareen, if you want to tell us what you read. Gabriel, I think you mean someone who straight up cheated. Um, You're being very, very polite about it, but this is a person who straight up cheated. I am pretty open to any genre of book to try it. I like a fiction. I like a nonfiction. I like, I can take a Western. I can take a mystery. I'll read a little bit of horror. But one thing that I full stop do not read is apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic fiction at all. I never pick it up. If I see that it is, I gently place it in a box and then I close the box and then I bury the box in the basement and I never go looking for that box. I erase all thought of that box. Yeah. So this was a challenge for me. I hate, I hate this genre with every cell in my being. I dislike it. My particular like brand of anxiety is that I can't handle this. Um, It sends me into a total tailspin that I cannot get out of because it just, it just makes me, makes me too anxious. So I, I maybe cheated a little to find a book and I chose to kind of maybe from, from Liz's, which is like the apocalypse, the apocalyptic sides of capitalism. And the apocalypse that is capitalism is what I went for. So I chose a book that probably actually is current and is happening and is a situation that is happening to certain people, but but maybe that we don't see or that we don't always recognize is, is happening and is, is the result of our own actions. One of the most powerful scenes of this particular book is there is a mother who has recently kind of moved to a new area after their father has been sent to a re-education camp. And so she is alone with her 14-year-old son who's named Bug Eye, who's a bit of a punk. He's a bit, he got his nickname from a police officer who was saying, look here, you little bug-eyed punk, get out of here. And he thought, that's a cool name. That's a really cool like street nickname. And so he calls himself a bug eye and he and his mother have been kind of lured to this area by the promise of somewhere to live and promise of things to eat and maybe to be able to make some money because with, uh, with their father gone, um, the mother hasn't been able to make ends meet at the flower store. And so it was kind of at loose ends. And when someone said, well, we can take you to a place where you could be fed, where you could have a home and where you could make some money for you and your son, the mother leaps at the chance, um, gets on this truck and is taken out of the city of Seoul uh, to the outskirts of a place called Flower Island. And as they come into Flower Island, the first thing that Bug Eye notices is the smell, the stench the rot, 
It is an island fully composed of garbage, towers and mountains and piles of garbage, all of it being shipped out of the city of Seoul to the outskirts where 2,000 people make their 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 lives, their livelihood, and their homes in this in this slum. And as the mother is kind of standing, looking around, seeing their their new house that's hastily cobbled together, made out of cardboard and plastic, the son is upset. He doesn't understand how he went from the city of, of beauty, a modern city, to this this garbage dump. And the mother turns and looks at him and says, "People live here, just like anywhere else." So. This is the story of a place that is filled with things used up and tossed aside, things people have grown tired of, and things that were no longer of use to anyone. And the people that live here were likewise discards and outcasts driven from the city. So this is the book Familiar Things by Huang Suk-young, um, who is one of Korea's most famous modern authors. Um, it was translated by Sora Kim Russell. And it is the story, it's a little bit of magical realism. It is a little bit of a dystopia. I don't know that it is entirely accurate, but it is probably accurate to a lot of people's lived experience. And it is the, the story of Bug Eye who when him and his mother start to live in Flower Island, um, they are the people that sort through all the garbage that comes out of the city looking for half-eaten food or expired instant noodle packages that they can still eat, or they pull out metals and plastics that can be sent to go and be recycled. And it is the story of this kind of like little micro community of people that that have their own rituals, that have their own lives, that have their own dignity, and who kind of make their living on the garbage created from other people. It is a little bit of magical realism as uh, Bugai and his mother are kind of taken in by Baron and his son named Baldspot. All the kids have excellent nicknames. Baldspot, who has a little patch of missing hair from a burn that he suffered when he was a child, who kind of initiates Bugai into the world of Flower Island, but also the mysterious spirits that inhabit it. These kind of strange goblin ghosts from the past that can perhaps lead to their to their safety or their to be kind of like a savior to them or maybe leading them to destruction. It is a beautiful, beautifully written, sparse story. It You're going to cry. You're going to cry so much, which I think is a hallmark of post-apocalyptic fiction is that you're going to cry. You're going to feel things. And so I felt a lot of things about, about this book. It is about, as kind of you said, Dominic, it is about the resilience of the human the human experience of the human soul to kind of make ends meet no matter what situation you happen to be in. And I think that this is, is a very, very beautiful example of that. And all of this, this flower island, this garbage, this society is what the author refers to as the hell that we have created. And I feel like a lot of apocalyptic fiction, fiction also draws on that, that a lot of these disasters are things that we have in many ways brought upon ourselves by not understanding the consequences of our own actions or our own consumerism. So I'm going to say it counts. If you're looking to enjoy more Korean literature and translation, I would definitely recommend um, Interlibrary loaning this very fantastic book. And did I pick it up because it was on RM of BTS's reading list? Yes. Yes, I did. Awesome. I mean, I think that's actually, I think that's a really interesting story. And even if it's maybe not the traditional post-apocalyptic thing that we were thinking of, I mean, I think there's a lot of really important thoughts there. When we think about post-apocalyptic fiction, a lot of the time we're thinking of events or ways of life or having to cope with certain things that there might already be people having to cope with a version of this, right? There's a reason that a lot of um, Indigenous authors write post-apocalyptic fiction because to an extent there is the idea that post-contact is practically post-apocalyptic for people who are having to live in places maybe without clean drinking water or any other particular difficulties that might come along with that. So I think that's a really important thing to like point out that when we're looking at 
the genre or what counts or the sort of things that we're taking out of it, there might be people who are living with this right now, or there might be people who are living with something that could be worse or that might be brought on from other things. So living in kind of like a trash island, while maybe not a traditional form, I still think brings up the same important philosophical questions that some of the other post-apocalyptic fiction that I would normally think of does. So I would say that is a really interesting take and also a really important take. So thank you, Corrine. I'm going to send it over to Virginia to see what she picked out this week. Of course, being the entire opposite of Corrine, perfect segue because I completely agree with you, Gabriel. I think that is why I love apocalyptic stories and post-apocalyptic story because it gives me hope because these stories often celebrate that resilience of people and that it helps us, forces us in many cases to face the horrors of the world, the ugly truths, the things that we want to pretend we don't see, that we forget, like you said, other people are living right now and it inspires action and it tries to bring awareness to all those things. And very often the characters in there, they live through this and they come out in the end. You know, and, and so for me, it's it's hopeful. This is actually a really hopeful genre. And that's why I, I love it. I, I love this theme. And so this couple of weeks, I just got more chances to read more of these. And so thank you for this theme. Out of all the ones, I think I ended up picking the author that I like always meant to read, but never got around to it, but I did now. And so I feel better about calling myself a science fiction fan. I pick for you Brown Girl in the Rain by Nilo Hopkinson. And this is a Jamaican Canadian science fiction writer. And for your reference, Gabriel, we always mention is Canadian just so they can earn points with Fiona. So, um, so this is a post-apocalyptic story set in Toronto after the collapse of civilization. And people have abandoned the city center after all the riots, after all the collapse. And anyone who has the means to move out of the city center, move out of that chaos, to go into the suburbs so that they can find better, safer places to live have gone. So basically the rich and the elite, all the people have means to do so. People who are left behind are the ones who cannot get out, who will not get out. So left over in this city center, we call them the burns now. And it's ruled by a crime lord who has taken advantage of the chaos to establish himself as the lord of it all. His name is Rudy Sheldon and he has his gang and some other tricks up his sleeve that are quite terrifying. But he's also the guy that you go to if you need things that you can't get through regular means. And that's why the assistant to the premier of Ontario has just paid him a visit because the assistant needs a human heart. The premier is sick. She's up for re-election and she needs a heart transplant. Normally, they would have gone through the regular transplant program because they've got animal transplants uh, figured out. And so it's saved. That's usually what everybody gets. But the premier is insisting that she will only accept a human heart. And there's a really sinister reason why she needs that and that you would discover as the story unfolds. But that's why the assistant is here because Rudy could probably get her a few human hearts because these people in the burns, who is going to notice if a few of them go missing? Who is going to care that these people that are left behind, like no one cares about them? I'm pretty sure nobody would mind. And so after finding out what exactly does the premier need, Rudy called Tony in. Tony is the new guy. He has just joined the gang. He has yet to prove his loyalty and his ability. So Rudy thought, yeah, this is a great test for you. So start telling Tony what he needs to do. Tony is horrified. Tony has never killed a human being before. And in fact, He's only here because he has lost his job at the hospital because of his drug addiction and they found out about it. And so he now need, needs money. And so he has decided to join in with Rudy. But he never imagined what he would have to do 
when you join Rudy. He should know better, but he doesn't. So now he is stuck with trying to figure out how to get a heart. And he realizes that, you know what? I, I can't do this. I, I can't do this. I need to get out of here. And the only people that he thinks might be able to help him is his ex-girlfriend, Tijan, and her grandmother. And this is really where the story starts because this story is about Tijan and her family, her mother and her grandmother, and the three generations of women. Tijan and her grandmother lives in the Burns, and they're quite well-known in the community because her grandmother is kind of a, a spiritual healer. She's a herbalist, and people come to her for remedies, for cures. And she's also somebody who practices obia, which is a kind of spiritual, like you call the spirits to come help or to harm people, depending on who's calling. But it's the spiritual healing that, that her grandmother practices. And that's the part of her grandmother that Jen wants nothing to do with because she has seen what the so-called spirits have done to her mother. Her mother was driven sort of mad basically because of it and has left one night and has abandoned her. She, she tries not to have anything to do with it because she doesn't believe in it. But yet... It's really not up to her because the spirits have come calling. They have been appearing more and more in her dreams. They have been showing her things that she doesn't understand. And sometimes when she looks at people, she can see the future. She can see things that happen to them in the future. And she's trying really hard to ignore all the signs that something is different about her family. And then, of course, here it is, Tony at her doorstep trying to ask for help because he thinks that maybe her grandmother can do something to help him get out of the city. Maybe they can help him, maybe turn him invisible so that he can leave without getting detected by Rudy and his gang. And her grandmother is trying to push Tony out because her grandmother knows that Tony is no good for her granddaughter. She doesn't want to help her. But deep down, Tijan still feels a little bit for Tony. She might still love him a little bit. And it's also that Tony is her baby's father. Tony doesn't know that. Tijan is trying to keep this a, a secret. Doesn't want to tell Tony about it. Also partly why she broke up with him because she realized that because of his addiction, like Tony is not going to be good for the family. But but yet she, she can't help it. And so she... She decides to help. She puts her foot down and she never does that with her grandmother because her grandmother is just like, her word is the final word. But this time she's like, no, no, grandmother, please help Tony. Help Tony get out. Then, then at least she'll be out, he'll be out of our lives. We don't have to like see him again. And so now Tijan and her family is sucked into this, into helping Tony run away from the big bad guy. And there's definitely more to the story. There's a lot more connections that you get to discover between Tijan and her family and other things that happened in the story. And there's definitely no shortage of action. I feel like this is one of those very uh, story that you can easily imagine being adapted into a movie. Um, and I'm not just saying this because Gabriel likes movies. Everything's just so cinematic. Um, and when you think that you've reached like, oh, this is like the climax of the movie, and then you think you're going to, oh, yeah, now, now she's going to go face Rudy in this epic battle. Well, there's more. There's more. Like, you know, you think it is ending, but there's always more. There's always something else happening. So, so much actions and the imagery, the author that is able to, like, come up with because her writing is so lyrical, is so rhythmic. You can just hear and feel the music. You can feel the influence of her, her, her culture in the story. And you can see the colors. And it's just a treat for like all the senses when you read the story. In addition to it being like very action-packed, high-stick kind of story, it is also very much a character story, very focused on the growth of Tijan. Now, the Hawkinson explains how the, the title of the book, Brown Girl in the Rain, is actually a game, a name of a game that she used to play when she was a kid. And it's a game where there's a girl who sit and stand in the middle and everybody will form a circle around her and they chant this rhyme. And then they're basically asking the girl, show me what you've got. And that is very much what the story is. It's Tijan trying to figure out what have I got to show the world? What have I got to face 
all these horrible things that are happening to me because she's being pulled from all sides. Everybody wants something from her. And she also needs to break out, break out of the cycle that her family is stuck in, the cycle of violence, the cycle of abuse that she's inherited, that she's continuing living with. And she's trying to figure out like who she really is. When you are told all along that your heritage, your culture, you are wrong, you're outdated, you're inferior, you're irrelevant. Come over, come over to this better world. All the stuff that are you, that are, that, that are your heritage, you should be ashamed of it because they're just so irrelevant these days. And that's what she's been told. And she has always tried to distance herself from that and, and trying to like stop her grandmother from telling her about her stories um, and all the things that her grandmother knows. And she's trying to like, like just dismiss all of that. And this is the story of teaching unlearning, unlearning all, and to try to embrace her roots, to find power in that culture and to finally think that, yes, it's okay. It's okay for me to be proud of my background and to draw strength from it. So I find this a really, really powerful story. And again, like I said, hopeful story. This is published in 1998. It's her debut novel. And this is kind of, it predates a lot of the work that are now kind of labeled like Afrofuturism. And she talks about it and she said how like this is, Afrofuturism is an act of Black activism because this is authors who, and, and writers and musicians who's trying to show that Black people have a future. And that is so important for people to see that. And so I highly encourage you to pick up this book. And I can't wait to read more books by Nyla Hopkinson too. So this is Brown Girl in the Rain by Nyla Hopkinson. That sounds amazing. That is definitely something that I think I'm going to put on my uh, to-read list almost immediately. Um, as someone who has, I've seen different elements that I don't know if it was maybe inspired by or it's just potentially like a theme that's come up in other post-apocalypse stuff I've seen. I've definitely seen the movie Repo far too many times or Repo the Genetic Opera, I should specify, not the one with Jude Law. And <laughs> so it's it's got such cool, cool elements. So thank you so much for telling us about that, Virginia. Now to go to maybe a more classic take on or actually I guess 1998 is, is a pretty it's a pretty classic take but a slightly different older take uh from Fiona so I actually switched my book but it is my book is also from 1998 so I really really struggled with this topic probably the most I have struggled with any topic yet that we have done I'm not like really somebody who dislikes um, dystopian or apocalyptic fiction. Uh, I like satire. I, I really like speculative fiction. But right now, this is something I really struggled with. I had a strategy. My strategy was, I'll read a classic. It'll be so cheesy that I'll love it. And I won't think about the apocalypse. No, I'm not ready to just handle the ugliness of humankind right now. Uh, so I tried to read Day of the Triffids and, and there was not enough killer plants and just too much ugly, ugly humanness. So I was like, oh, I'll go back to like some graphic novels I've read and those are quick and I'll just pull them up. No, also too horrendous. <laughs> um, so I did settle on a book I read a while ago and loved with a caveat that I'll tell you about, which is very much like an understated apocalyptic book that at the time is from 1998. So um, YA wasn't so much of a thing, but now would probably fit into that genre. I am talking about Into the Forest by Jean Hegland. This is a book about two sisters, Nell and Eva. And Nell has just gotten into Harvard. And Eva is a very dedicated dancer and is planning to go to, I can't remember if it's Juilliard, but like some very great dance school. And they reside in Northern California. So it has that nice kind of familiar environment that we live in. And, you know, they are like most teens 
who are becoming adults, except for maybe a few things. They're homeschooled. They live out on the outskirts of town in like a little bit of a homestead with their kind of hippy dippy parents. So they kind of feel like outsiders despite being, you know, like fairly normal teens. This is a very understated apocalyptic novel in that it is about this family's experience, which I really appreciated not having to read about like everything that happens in the world with the collapse of society. We see it through their eyes, uh, you know, something we've experienced of, you know, you go to the grocery store and, and there's not as many things on the shelves and it kind of deteriorates from there. And there are some other characters, there's a group of teens that Nell falls in with, but they all sort of scatter as uh, as the world starts to deteriorate. And Nell and her sister and her father, because they, they've lost their mother to cancer somewhat recently, they are not able to come into town to visit as much because the price of gas has soared. Soon into the novel, an accident happens and their father passes away. So now it is just the two sisters on their own dealing with the deterioration of society and the lack of resources. They do a audit of what is in their garage. They only have one tank of gas and the sisters are split on how they want to use that. Ava is desperate to have music, to dance as much as she can, and she wants the power on so that she can dance, even if it's just for an hour. Nell is more practical and knows that they should keep the gas for an emergency. It's really a, a beautiful story about their relationship and how close they are sometimes and how distant they are in other times, their inability to reach through their own issues and and communicate with each other and support each other at times. It's very much a coming of age. Um, and what I really liked about it was the survivalist aspect. So uh, they start canning things. And for me, that's like a like just something I love. <laughs> it's like, let's use our resources as best we can. Let's plant a garden. Like sort of the like Virginia was talking about um like learning to thrive and obviously that's an that's an up and a down um experience in an apocalypse you know sometimes you succeed sometimes everything you canned goes off i'm sure this sounds very like boring to some people but surely there's someone out there that that also finds like talking about how canning is done in a like in a fictional setting as exciting as i do so the there is another character uh, as as one reviewer suggested um which is the woods so, you know, we have the relationship between these these two sisters, but also their relationship to the woods and to nature and and this kind of back and forth about whether they can trust it and depend on it. One of the things I loved about this was it was about the survival aspect and less about the ugliness of people because they live out of the way. Uh, they don't come into contact with people very often. But there were some scenes near the end uh, and there's a rape scene that I want to uh, just to let you know about and where that ugliness is very much brought into center, uh, which I struggled with. And this whole book was very much like a five for me. I was loving it. I just sank into it. It has the most beautiful lyrical words that you just identify with at every, every moment. But there was a scene of incest that took it down from a five to me to a 3.5. So um, if you, if, if that's kind of like a big no for you, like it is for me, just, just a heads up that that may affect your enjoyment of the book. It was so unfortunate because it's just, it's just such a beautiful understated book that kind of like is both slow paced, but is also kind of keeping you guessing at every turn, which for me, I, I read it in print, which, as you know, is not something that I usually, not something that I usually dive into in that way, but it was for me, uh, uh, when am I going to be home so I can sit on the couch and, and get absorbed into this book? And I think for like 1998, it, it holds up very well. So that is Into the Forest by... Jean Hegland, and maybe a little bit of a softer apocalyptic book, if that is what you're looking for. That is a very unique sounding story, which is kind of cool. I, yeah, I have a feeling that a lot of it would really like shine through in that, um, in that lyrical 
uh, way that you had described the prose. It sounds like one of those things that maybe is hard to describe to people until you've actually read it and you just sort of have to say like, trust me, uh, which is sometimes, <laughs> sometimes how I feel when I'm trying to recommend certain things. I read something that was pretty different from that, I would say. Um, <laughs> so if that was a slow pace book, this is not a slow pace book. I read Dread Nation by Justina Ireland. So this is very much an action book. This is an action young adult novel. So it is set in the reconstruction period in a post-Civil War South, and it never stops moving. So Jane is a young black girl born to the white mistress of a plantation in Kentucky. She was actually born on the day that the fields of dead soldiers began to rise up in Gettysburg and infect the living. She had to grow up in a world where they erected barbed wire fences around the plantation to keep everyone safe from shamblers, which is what they call zombies in this, uh, that wandered by their walls. She has an uh, encounter fairly, fairly young in which she watches one of her close friends be eaten alive after poor Zeke had unwisely decided to poke at it, which is a hard lesson to learn when you are probably around 10. They were quite young. And so when uh, when she came of age, Jane was shipped off to Miss Preston School to become an attendant. So attendants are Black girls that function as both bodyguards and kind of ladies-in-waiting for the rich white women in uh, America, especially in the South, but it's also implied that there's at least some form of it in the North as well. You spend some time in the beginning with Jane while she is being measured in both her fighting prowess and her inability to conform to society's expectations for her etiquette, both of which are necessary for employment. I think that especially especially for a lot of young adult stuff where it's kind of like, oh, I've been shipped off to a boarding school, and then there might be an element of maybe the interesting dynamics between uh, different girls, like an all-girls boarding school. This is a very fun take on it because it's both, oh, I'm being trained in scythe combat, and also what uh, cutlery is used for what. And so it's kind of a fun juxtaposition in that sense. After getting on the bad side of a corrupt mayor, she's sent to a town with a hidden conspiracy that's up to her and Catherine, uh, one of the other girls, to solve. So I don't want to get, I guess, like too much into it because, again, it's got sort of more of a conspiracy and some kind of twists and turns uh, further on in the story, but this is definitely one where I think that the mood of it is really what you'd want to go for as opposed to maybe the maybe some of the plot points because it is very much an action thriller book living up to the image of the zombie slayer that the cover very much presents. If you're listening, there is a sickle in her hand um, and she has kind of a almost militaresque coat on and everything she looks very cool and it's got some it's got some fun backward science it's got some not so fun backward science that is rooted in real life questionable science it has a lot of really cool world building as to how the south adapted to the introduction of a zombie plague it's actually i would say like a pretty classic zombie story but the lore element of the alternate history is just something that I really loved, especially being someone who is a history fan in general. It really pays attention to American history in a way that maybe not every historical fiction thing would. It sort of pokes at the different areas, the different events, and it asks, how can maybe the themes or what came after, how can I change that? How can I make that work in this world? Uh, where does it make sense for these things to come poking up? And how are they actually going to affect the lives of the characters in it? And so there's lots of cool references to like uh, the March to the Sea or things like that, where it's like, actually, they were running away from zombies at the time. And that's why they were having to move troops very quickly and sort of things like that, where at the same time, taking a lot of those very, very serious elements of history and a lot of the stuff that comes from the history of slavery in the South, the history of plantations. And one thing that's, I would say, examined, maybe not in depth, but quite definitely sort of touches on it, is the idea of taking young folks of color and putting them in a school. So in Canada, we would call them residential schools, but uh, that idea of like re-education 
and the idea that there are some bodies in this universe that are being used to protect other bodies and sort of the politics of that. And I'd say that it's actually, it's dealt with quite well. It's dealt with in a very sort of nuanced way that you don't always expect a young adult thing to do. Justina Ireland, I believe, is an activist as well. I don't know her too much. And when I was trying to look up stuff, there were various things that came up. And so I didn't, I don't really want to say too much about her, but I know that she is someone who uh, is known for doing this kind of work, even outside of her writing. And looking at even like the characters, Jane and Catherine, they're both very, they're, they're probably one of the main reasons to read it because they're both very well developed, I would say. Maybe don't have as much of an arc as I would have liked for them. They don't do as much growth as I would normally like. I think they kind of almost come out first page fully formed, which is nice in some ways because it, it is a good fully formed character. They have kind of an interesting rivalry turned friendship and it's kind of a spoiler, but by the end, they also both turn out to be queer, which was a lovely surprise. Um, Jane, our narrator, is a, a bisexual woman and uh, Catherine, her friend, is a romantic and asexual. So that was kind of an interesting conversation to have. Uh, it's not super present in the narrative because it's really not a romance book, but the author did kind of want to just have them have what I would say is actually kind of like a fairly natural heart to heart about it at one point, which is really nice to read. The book definitely loves its history, loves to play around in it, uh, isn't afraid to show how similar modern day America is to that of reconstruction. Even the zombies, even the zombies aren't something that super takes away from, I think, that message. And the, the other thing that I would say, which might make or break it for you, is that I don't think it is possible to read this book in a non-Southern accent. The main character has a lot of very strong opinions. Like I said, she's a very well-developed character, very well-formed, which means that it is impossible not to read it in a Kentucky accent. So if that's something you think might throw you off, just keep that in mind. I, I would still encourage you to try it out, but I was definitely thinking in a drawl for the rest of the day when I was trying to read this. Uh, there's also a second book out in the series. So I think that one came out fairly recently. And so if you're interested, I don't think that I'm not sure if there's going to be more, but I know there's at least a second book. This is definitely one that would very easily also translate to being a movie or a TV show, but it isn't yet. And because I would be amiss without mentioning it, here is my video game recommendation, not based on Dread Nation, but based on po post-apocalyptic fiction. So we had an interesting conversation about this before the podcast started, but my recommendation is Death Stranding by Hideo Kojima. It's a game that is set in the United States following a cataclysmic event which caused destructive creatures to begin roaming the Earth. You control a character who looks like Norman Reedus, which is fun, who is a courier tasked with delivering supplies to isolated colonies and reconnecting them via a wireless communications network. So that's from Wikipedia. And it's got a lot of different actors in it. You can have a Guillermo del Toro and Maz Mikkelsen and a whole bunch of other people who you wouldn't expect. But most importantly, if you are interested in stories that deal with putting together broken societies, that is a game for you. I would also say you do spend a lot of time essentially being a FedEx or mail carrier person, but you know what? As we know in the pandemic, delivery people keep us running. And so Hideo Kojima, mastermind that he is, predicted the ways in which we would need to come together and move apart. And so I would be amiss without uh, plugging my favorite. I don't know if he's, I think he's a director, even if it's a video game. So my favorite director. Yeah. And now I have an existential question for the few people that are here. Forgive me if uh, this is something that we have talked about before, but what is the one thing that always makes reading better for you? For me, it, and I want to give an example because I think that's a pretty broad question. Uh, it could be something like your favorite chair or a specific playlist 
for me, I think it would be the ambiance of the place that I'm reading it. If I can romanticize my life a little bit while I am reading, I just want to feel a little bit like the main character for a while. It just makes me feel a little bit more into it, whether that be in like a, a cafe or even if I'm feeling particularly, um, let's say self-centered, because again, main character on the train, then who's this person on the subway reading this or Skytrain? Sorry, we're in Vancouver. Uh, <laughs> Skytrain reading this lovely book. I think that really adds to the reading experience for me. For me, it's pretty utilitarian kind of in, in that you all know audiobooks. That's my thing. So driving, driving is what makes reading better. <laughs> well, first of all, Gabriel, I love Dread Nation. I'm so glad you got to talk about Dread Nation. It's like one of my favorite. Is that that alternative history is just the best, the best. The sequel, I think is equally good. So go check it out. But I think for me, Really? At, recently, I've discovered I, I need complete silence. Like, I get really irritated at noise. So that's why, and maybe that's probably why I enjoy my 4 a.m. reading, because the world is quiet and no one is there to bug me. <laughs> no noise from anywhere. Um, so I feel like for me, these days, it's silence is what makes it better and and the only noise that i would tolerate is raining that's also cool i love that noise in the background but other than that i think for me it would be time time is a luxury and i i may read on a lunch break for example but i don't like continually checking the time when i'm reading or thinking, oh, you know, I need to stop reading by a certain time so I can go do something else that I need to do. Um, it's too, it's too distracting for me. Just like noise is distracting for Virginia. Life and its demands are too distracting for me when I'm reading. Some, inter some interesting takes. I feel like I, I learn more about everybody every time that we record. And so, uh, I hope that for the listeners or viewers out there that if you're interested in post-apocalyptic stories now, or even if you're just going to be interested in them maybe one day when we're living in a less turbulent times, that there are some options for you to come back to, assuming that we live, we will be living in a world in which certain things still be around i don't know how long death stranding will be around i don't know how long how long any of these things will be around and interesting but especially given that we have two books from 1998 i don't think i don't think these are going anywhere i don't think the genre is going anywhere and as always i am interested to see what kinds of narratives uh people will come up with in the future and what sort of things we will be looking at for post-apocalyptic fiction following the current pandemic and how that might change things. So thank you for listening. And I hope you all have a great, you all have a great week. We're going to miss you so much, Liz. Miss you too. End of the world for us. <laughs> End of the world for us. So dramatic. Apocalypse. Yes, apocalypse. <laughs> thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm -hmm.